Welcome to an inspirational teaching by Pastor Victor DeMonte, the senior pastor of Adonai Church, Bangalore. We hope you enjoy this teaching. We're going to look at something very significant in terms of understanding the heart of God and what does God have in store for us. Many people have this question, what is my ministry? We're going to look at what our ministry is like. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 to 20. It would be nice if we could pray and ask God to speak to us. I believe it's going to be a significant uh, word that God can liberate you this evening. So I want you to pray and ask God, God, give me a revelation. Speak to me, Lord. Father, I just pray your spirit come. Speak to us, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say. Give us a heart to receive what you want to do amongst us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he couldn't swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. When God made a promise to Abraham, it took a long while for that promise to come to pass. And so over the period of time, Abraham became weary waiting for the promise and not seeing it happen. So there was a moment when God reassured Abraham and swore, saying to him, Surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. Now all of us at some stage of our lives have gotten to this debate with your friends, especially in school or colleges, And your friend never listened to you and you start saying, I promise, I promise. Done that? Uh, We went one step further when they didn't believe. I swear. And we hold our throat, we put our hands on our head and we swear swear by our head. You've done that? And then if the person is not convinced, I swear, my mother, my father. And then, oh, that's serious stuff. And what happens? It kind of settles the dispute between two people. It settles the argument after you have sworn. And now the Bible is saying, God settled the argument of doubt and unbelief in Abraham's heart by swearing against himself. Now look at what it says in verse 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. God swore in order to assure Abraham, give him that assurance that what he said, he will bring it to pass. Verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is then an end of all dispute. So he ended the dispute. Now when God promised, Abraham endured patiently. Some of us have had promises over our lives. Some of you have held on to a promise and believed God for the salvation of your loved one. You've had promises that were spoken prophetically over your life. And nothing has happened. But the secret is, endure patiently. And every person in the Bible lay hold of the promise of God by two things. Faith and patience. And in a day we are living, we run short of patience. Because everything is instant. Emails are instant. Communication is instant. 
And we expect God to also work in an instant manner. But the promises of God will be laid, will be a reality with faith and patience. True faith will always have the fruit of patience. And it says, Abraham obtained the promise. What promise? Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. Verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel. So now this is not only talking about Abraham. He's talking about us. He's talking about this generation, the seed of Abraham. And he says, now God is determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise. All of us, when you have Christ as your Savior, we are heirs of the promise of Abraham. And so, immutably of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. So not only to Abraham, but to us as his heirs, he confirmed it. Now the word immutability speaks of unchanging over time. So what God swore to Abraham, he swears to us, and it's unchangeable. God says, surely I will bless you. How many of you like that this evening? God swore he will bless you. You don't have to pray, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me. He swore he will bless you. You got to say, Lord, thank you for your blessing. He swore. And then it goes on to say, verse 18, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or comfort. So what are the two immutable things? One is God. And the second is his word. Two immutable things. God's character does not change. He's the same. His word does not change. And by these two immutable things, steadfast, character and word, God said we receive a strong comfort, a consolation, and an assurance in our heart who fled to lay hold of the hope set before us. What an assurance. That's why the more we understand God, the better it becomes for us to believe. Because we see the heart of God. A heart that wants to bless and multiply our descendants. Verse 19. This hope, as a result of what we hear from God, the oath that God made, this hope, We have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Who's it talking about? Jesus. So not only we have God in His Word, we have now Jesus entering behind the veil in the presence of God for us. Even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. When Jesus came into this world, he came to reveal God to mankind. Now Jesus has entered into heaven and he's there representing mankind to God. And that's why he's there for us 
interceding. God wants to make good His promise towards you. When God made man, He made him a physical being and also a spiritual being. In the physical realm, God intended man to multiply and have dominion on the earth. When God swore to Abraham, surely I will bless you and multiply you, he was not talking about physical descendants, he was talking about spiritual descendants. What do I mean by that? That means in the law of nature, everything that God created had the ability to reproduce itself. Every animal that exists in this world has the ability to reproduce itself. Every flower, everything of God's creation has the ability to reproduce itself. And so when God spoke to Abraham and said, Surely I will bless your descendants, he was speaking about descendants to come, which has the ability to reproduce themselves. And if creation stops reproducing, we will say there's a problem. A radical problem. Isn't that true? Now we have couples come ask for prayer. And when they are married, they want to start a family and they can't have a child. They pray. They will go from one place to another. They get desperate and they cry out to God. They will seek every medical help and say, Oh God, bless us Lord. We want to start a family. We want a child. Why? Because it seems natural for families or couples to start a family and have children. It seems natural. And when it doesn't happen, it frustrates them and, and it puts them in an awkward position. In the same way, spiritually, God birthed you into His kingdom with the ability to reproduce yourself so that the descendants of Abraham will come from your line. Am I making sense? You know, I never get anyone come for prayer and say, look, I've been spiritually barren. I've never won anyone to the Lord. Could you please pray for me? And we start getting frustrated over it. We seem to be very comfortable not reproducing ourselves spiritually. Are you with me this evening? You know what? There's something radically wrong when we don't reproduce what God has done in our lives. Because that's the law of God. That's the law of nature to reproduce. And so Paul the Apostle says, I want to lay hold of that for which God laid a hold of me. And so we need to make that prayer saying, I want to lay hold of that, that very thing, why God laid a hold of me and not somebody else. We have tolerated spiritual barrenness in our lives. You have 15 years in the kingdom of God, not witnessed, or even if you witnessed, not seen people saved. How does that make you? Does that frustrate you? Do you go to God and say, oh God, you touched my life and I want to be reproductive. Your word, you have sworn that you will not only bless me, but you will cause my, the descendants of Abraham to be multiplied through me. That's a promise. You see, here's the secret. You know what's the secret? Abraham never sought God for physical blessings or material blessings. You go back to the book of Genesis. And the Bible says that Abraham obeyed God and he was searching for a city whose foundations was God. He was looking for a city that was godly. He had a vision of something in the future that, had, that never existed. 
His heart was set on God. And when God spoke to him and God saw what uh, uh, his desire was, God says, surely, Abraham, I will bless you. And I will cause your descendants to be multiplied. We seek the wrong things. In fact, we seek the, the material blessings more than anything else. If I have to ask Christians, ask people, when last you prayed and fasted and sought God for the salvation of someone, God to touch people's lives, the ratio will be very low. But when last we trust God for a physical blessing, high percentage. Healing, high percentage. Blessing of business, high percentage. We have very high uh, track record when it comes to seeking Abraham's blessings, when it comes to the physical things, but when it comes to the spiritual things, we lack the passion, we lack the zeal and the determination for God to do something in reproducing sons and daughters for the kingdom. By nature, we are seekers. Isn't that true? By nature, we are all seekers. Now you question your own life. Right now, this very moment, there's something in your heart you're seeking for. You're either seeking God for a better job, seeking God for a partner, life partner, if you're not married. You're seeking God for, you know, promotion. You're seeking God for education. You're seeking God for something in your heart is seeking for some uh, blessing or some material thing or the other. Am I right? Check your heart and see. You will find there's something in your heart that's seeking and looking for something that you don't have. We are all seekers by nature. And that's why Jesus stepped into this world and says, Look, in the midst of you seeking things, seek ye first the kingdom. And when you seek my kingdom and my righteousness, everything else will be added to you. Come on, somebody shout amen about that. You see, Solomon, we like to be like Solomon. When God spoke to Solomon and said, Solomon, what do you want? He never asked for material blessings. He says, God, give me wisdom to lead your people. He was thinking of people. And what God said, because you asked the right thing, you sought me for the right thing, I will bless you financially, materially, everywhere. God blessed Solomon. He became a point of reference in history that the neighboring nations stood up and took notice of the blessings that was on Solomon's life. Am I right in saying that? Why? Because he sought after the spiritual blessing. I guarantee you. The day you set your heart of the spiritual blessings, the material blessings will follow. God will take care of it. And that's not what I'm saying. That's what the Bible says and is proven. What you're seeking for. What is it that's caught your heart? What is it that's driving you? Is it the promise that God has sworn to Abraham and his heirs? The blessing of seeing the descendants of Abraham being multiplied. In Psalms 2, 8, the Bible says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And that's what God is saying. Ask of me for what? And I will give you the nations. God says, Ask. Not for material blessing. Ask me for the nations. I will give you the nations. I will give you the ends of the earth for your possession. God wants to bless the nations through you and to me. What a powerful vision. What an amazing vision that we could live our life with. Through you. You know, 30 years ago, if I heard this message, I'd have thought, me? Impossible. And maybe you're sitting down there and, you know, saying, 
can't be true. Never underestimate what God can do through your life. All he is looking for is single-mindedness and determination. He swore and he brought you into his kingdom. You are a descendant of Abraham. And God will use you to make other descendants of Abraham. Because it's the law of multiplication. You know, there are many people in the church who have this one pressing question. You know what's the question? What's my ministry? What's my ministry? I don't know what's my ministry. I'm praying and praying, God, show me my ministry. Relax this evening. I'm going to show you what your ministry is. Are you okay with that? God's word shows us what's his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17. You can look at it in your Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all, all things have become new. But there is something I want to draw your attention to. That if you are in Christ, all things become new. That means your purpose changes and your destiny changes. For many of us, we receive Christ, but we still hold on to the old purpose. We do not want God to change our purpose. We hold on to our old destiny. We have dreams and ambitions that we still hold on to, not knowing all things, all things, all things become new. Your purpose is also new. Your destiny is also new. The reason why you exist in this world is for purpose. God has a higher plan and a higher purpose for you. Everything that you go through in life, in the hands of God, it's redemptive, and God uses it for His eternal purposes. None of us stand alone in this world. We have a lot of people in this world who suffer like you or even worse than you. And God has given you hope so that you can give those who have not received hope, hope. Here's your ministry. Verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. Are you willing to accept your ministry? What is your ministry? You can print your visiting card now. And wherever you go, whether it's your office, whether it's your college, you have a ministry of reconciliation. But something important is there in that verse. It says that God has reconciled us to himself. If you do not experience reconciliation with God, you will never be an agent of reconciliation with people and God. You need to experience reconciliation yourself. We have been reconciled with God. And as a result of being reconciled with God, we are so delighted, we are liberated, and then we go and reconcile others to God. That's our ministry. You become an ambassador. Look at the next verse, what it says. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. You know what? We have a title. You're not only having the ministry of reconciliation, we become ambassadors for Christ. You represent Him wherever you go. And that's why the Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We beg you. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled with God. The apostle Paul became an ambassador. 
Which kingdom? Not of the United States. He was an ambassador of a heavenly kingdom. He represented God. And God has called you, anointed you to be his ambassador to represent him to the nations. There is no greater season in the year than the December season to be an ambassador for Christ. That's why we're putting up this musical in December 6th. Invite your friends, invite your neighborhood. We are going to trust God that there will be a multiplication of the seed of Abraham. People will have the life that we have. I'm going to show you a testimony of how God had changed this person's life. And not only changed his life, but changed his destiny and his purpose changed eventually. I was raised in a home that did not know Christ, but my parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I had a secret, though, that I kept hidden through high school, college, and even the Marine Corps reserves. But when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I started dental school, I no longer kept it a secret, and I lived openly as a homosexual in the gay community. It was at that point that I decided to go home to Chicago and break the news to my parents, and I told them, I am gay. This devastated my mother, who was not yet a Christian, and she actually had resolved to end her life. But praise God, God saved her through the word of a little pamphlet that shared with her that all of us are sinners, and yet in spite of our sin, the God of the universe still loves us. And God opened up the eyes of her heart to see that just as God can love her, she could love me in spite of the fact that I was living as a gay man. So my mother surrendered her life to Christ, and within a few months, my father did as well. Spending most of my free time in the gay clubs, I, went, I, I began experimenting with drugs. And this whole time, I tried to live this double life. I also began selling drugs. And I tried to live this double life of being a graduate student by day and promiscuous drug dealer by night. But four months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved to the bright lights of big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. My parents had no idea that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And my mother would try to reach out to me with the love of Christ, send me Christian cards every other day, fill them with paragraphs of scripture, and sign the bottom of it, love you forever, mom. And I never read those cards and simply toss them to trash. My parents one time flew to Atlanta to visit me, and after the second day, I kicked them out. My dad, though, before he left, wanted to give me something, and it was his very first Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter, and as soon as they left, I took his Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless but my parents committed not to focus upon the hopelessness but upon the promises of God and along with over a hundred prayer warriors they began to cry out to God for me my mother began to pray a very bold prayer which was God do whatever it takes 
to bring this prodigal son to you. Whatever it takes. She fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would literally spend hours every morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, interceding on my behalf. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. And so I tried calling home, and I dreaded making that phone call. But my mother's first words were, Are you okay? No condemnation. Just words of unconditional love and grace. Romans 2.4 says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. As she hung up that phone, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them. One by one. She ripped off a little piece of adding machine tape and wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Three days later, as I was walking around the cell block, I passed by a garbage can. And as I look at this garbage can, I realized that my life was so much like this garbage. I was now surrounded by common criminals, trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can, but something on top of that trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book and read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me be honest with you, I did not think that this was the answer to all my problems. I thought I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have here in this book is not just ink on paper. What we have here is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin and my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things could not get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was calling in the nurse's office. I knew something wasn't right. She sat me down, uncomfortably struggling with the words. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, and she slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. 
it read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life. But news of my HIV status was like a death sentence. As I lay in my bunk one night, I looked up at the metal bed above me and I saw something scribbled. And it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. At the most hopeless point in my life, God used the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea where this plan was going to take me, but he gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next. My transformation was gradual, and God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but he completely delivered me from that with a few months. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. As I continued to read the scriptures, I realized that my, sexu- that my identity should not be defined by my feelings or my sexuality. My identity is not gay or homosexual or even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. You see, God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But I realized that the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And God was telling me, don't focus upon your sexuality or your feelings, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. As I began living this life of obedience, God revealed his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison. And so I called home collect to my parents and I told them of my interest to go to Bible college and asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of in Chicago called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed me the application. I quickly filled it out till I got to the bottom where they asked me for references from people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. The only people I could find was a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody Bible Institute. So the greatest miracle is that Moody actually accepted me. (laughs) I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month, graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my Master of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School. I'm working on my doctorate from Bethel Seminary, and I just published a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, and God has such a sense of humor because now I'm back at Moody teaching in the Bible department. I went from prisoner to professor. The Word of God changes lives. And that's true. That's what God will do in every one of our lives. No matter how hopeless, no matter how desperate your situation is, He can take you from a prisoner to whatever addiction to be a proclaimer and an ambassador for Christ. We look at this word reconcile. We were reconciled to God. What does this word reconcile mean? The word reconciled means to settle one's differences, to make peace with someone, kiss and make up. That's the meaning of the word reconcile. 
So the good news is that God reconciled us to himself. God's not mad at us. God's not mad at this world. He's not waiting to judge this world. I know many people think that God's waiting to pour out his wrath on this world. No, that's not God. He's waiting for an opportunity to save this world. He's reconciled this world back to himself. And when I talk about the world, I'm talking about the people in this world. You know, we've all had a breakdown in relationships with either friends or with our spouses. And then you carry the feeling of loneliness or a breakdown and the pain of that. That you take the initiative to talk to your friend and say, I'm sorry for what I said. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Why? Because you want to kiss and make up so that there will be reconciliation between you and your friend. And reconciliation is two-way. And if you're married, you know what reconciliation is. Normally married people, when they find one looks this side, the other one looks that side. And then after that, the silence is killing. And someone comes and says, okay, if this makes you happy, I am sorry. That's not genuine reconciliation. But that's reconciliation, kissing and making up, or settling your differences with one another. Mankind turned his back against God. We were hostile to the things of God. We were rebellious in our ways. And God sent Jesus into this world to represent man. To represent our condition. Identify with our sin. So that through Jesus Christ, God and man can be united and reconciled with one another. He became a reconciler between us and God. Jesus took our place in history so that we will be reconciled with the Father in heaven. In Romans chapter 5 verse 10, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His grace. Two words, reconciliation and salvation. Now God took the initiative to reconcile. That means God was not angry with us. God was long-suffering. He was patient. His love was steadfast. That's the character of God. He reconciled us who was hostile to Himself. And that's the condition of this entire world. He reconciled just to think that even those who are brutal murderers, who shoot people of ISIS, God loves them, is an amazing thought. That God has provided forgiveness for them. God's heart is not to judge them, but to restore them. Something we can't comprehend. But He has already done everything that He needed to do to reconcile the hostile world back to Him. He paid the price for it. If the world can only recognize that God has provided forgiveness and God wants to reconcile, the minute you receive that, you're saved. And that's the difference between reconciliation and salvation. Right now, we are all reconciled. When we receive it, when we acknowledge it, that's when reconciliation turns into our salvation. And that's why the Bible is saying in Romans chapter 5, We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Jesus, 
much more now, when we were enemies, we were reconciled, but now much more, having been reconciled, we experience salvation, we experience His forgiveness, His goodness and His acceptance. There's a brilliant story in the Bible that talks about a reconciliation that happened in Luke chapter 15. The Bible talks about a father that had two sons. I'm sure by now you're guessing the story. But I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. And the younger son goes up to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Now we all know that inheritance is got after the parent has died. But he wanted his inheritance now. He couldn't wait any longer. And the father sells the property, divides the share, and gives it to his younger son. His son disgraces his father, dishonors his father. For some reason, he was mad and angry at his father. And he thought he could live life better by walking out of his house. And as young people, we think that. If I can only walk out of this house, life will be better. That's what we think. And this young guy walked out of his house, took that money, went to a distant country, the Bible says, squandered his money, his friends left him, finance ran out, and the only sensible thing he could do was look for a job because famine had come to that country. And the job he got was to look after pigs, in a farm. The Bible tells us that he was hungry and he would long to eat the food that was given to the pigs. And at that moment, he remembered his father's house. He said to himself, my father has many servants. And I have sinned against God and I have sinned against my father. That prodigal son represents us. That prodigal son represents the world who turned away from God. For some reason or the other, we thought we knew better how to live our life. And we deliberately chose wrong. We deliberately walked our own way like the prodigal son. And some of us have hit the pigsty. We've hit dead ends in our life. We've come to a place of hopelessness and we've realized we've sinned against God and we've sinned against our parents. But the father in the story represents God. And Jesus was telling a story about God, the father and the son and a world that was rebellious to God. That's the story that Jesus is communicating. And the son says to himself, I'm going to go back to my father's house. He didn't sit in hopelessness. He didn't allow condemnation to get the better of him. He says, I'm going back to my father's house. And this time when I go back, I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. I will tell my father, will you take me as a hired servant? He was willing to lower himself as one of the other servants in the father's home. That wasn't the father's heart, but that's what was in his heart. Guilt had got the better of him. And he thought if he could get back to his home as a servant, at least he'd feel better now. The Bible says that the father heard the son was coming, ran towards the son, 
and he hugged and embraced his son. Now a person working among pigs, you can imagine how they smell. But that didn't stop the father. Neither does that stop God. Because that's the story about God who's reaching out to us. A God who's yearning after us. None of us found God. God found us. God found you. You have people coming to you time and again with the gospel. Time and again with salvation. You were hostile. You refused it. But God never gave up on you. And thank God for that. God used every opportunity to catch your attention. And if you're here who do not know what it means to be reconciled with God, He's catching your attention this evening. The father kisses the boy. And the boy is saying, Dad, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. Take me as one of your hired servants. The father's not even listening to him. Now listen to this. The father never ever labeled the son as an, an unworthy son. You read that passage? How many of you read that passage? Did the father call his son unworthy? Did the father say, you useless guy? You scoundrel? You waster? He never labeled him anything. The son labeled himself. And there are a lot of sons in God's kingdom who are still labeling themselves. It is not that God counts you unworthy. We count our own selves unworthy. Our own guilt condemns us. Our own guilt disqualifies us. God never ever labeled you or condemned you. That's not the heart of God. And we see that in the Bible. And so if you've been coming to God and saying, God, I've sinned, I've lived such a miserable life, I'm unworthy. Look, God looks at you as a son, not as a slave. And he says this, servants, get the best robe. Not just a robe, get the best robe. Put it on him. The first thing that we can experience is the embrace of God. Our salvation is complete when we've understood and tasted the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness is not just to be understood. Forgiveness is to be experienced. When we experience the love of God, the unconditional love of God, our salvation is complete. The word repentance means changing our view about God. I had a bad view about God. I thought God was angry and He was waiting to punish. And I had to work very, very hard in order to please God. That was my view about God. And I was so wrong as I read the Bible and understood God. And some of you have that view. Repentance starts with changing your view about God. And if you think God is angry, God is mad at you, God is holding your past against you, you're mistaken. God is an extremely loving God. He's a kind and gracious God. And part of His loving nature keeps no records against us. He forgives us. And He clothes us with the robes of righteousness. Not our righteousness, His righteousness. He clothes us. He doesn't expose our sin. He covers our sin. The Bible says His love covers a multitude of sin. What a testimony. From a homosexual, drug dealer, God never held His past against him. God had a destiny. His destiny changed. His purpose changed. 
and then he's teaching in a Bible school. Look at the purpose. What is your purpose? Have you seen your purpose in the light of God? You've seen the way God has redeemed you, restored you, clothed you with his robes of righteousness, puts a finger, that's the third thing that the father did, put a finger, ring on his finger. A ring is a sign of belonging. And he says, son, you're a son in this place. You're not a half slave mentality in my home. You're a son. You belong to this home. And you have authority in this home. Sons have authority. Slaves don't have authority. Isn't that true? And as long as you hold on to slave mentality, you will never walk in the authority that God has for you. If you work in slave mentality, you're trying to earn acceptance. You'll never enjoy the place of belonging with God. He has reconciled. We need to get used to the fact that God loves us. We need to get used to the idea that God's love towards us is unconditional and steadfast towards us. No matter what we do or don't do, His love is constant towards us. And because we understand His character, we reciprocate His love and say, God, we love you and we thank you for that love. It's something we experience. And that the last thing that the father did, he told his servants, cut the fatted calf, let's celebrate. And Jesus says, this is exactly how it will be in heaven. Angels rejoice over one sinner that comes to me. In the Bible, God didn't slaughter a lamb. God didn't slaughter the fatted calf. He slaughtered a lamb called Jesus. So that we can have a place of belonging. And that we could have fellowship with the Father. The lamb was sacrificed so that we can have a feast and we can celebrate. As we break bread, that's the purpose of our celebration. The wine and the bread is a celebration of a feast that God has invited us because of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done. But before we come to that part, I want to end with two or three scriptures. And this is what God commissioned the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26 verse 18. To open their eyes, God called Saul. He had a transformation experience. And in chapter 26 verse 18 says, This is your mandate. This is your mission. To open their eyes, those who are unsaved. In order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness. So what is our ministry? Our ministry is to pray that God will open the spiritual eyes of people. Because when you see it, you will receive it. The minute you see God's forgiveness, you will receive God's forgiveness. The problem is not many people have seen God's forgiving heart and God's loving heart. And that's why we cannot receive His forgiveness and receive His love. You first got to see it before you receive it. We are still praying, Lord, please forgive, please forgive, please forgive. Hey, see it. He is a forgiving God. He has already forgiven you even before you asked. He died on the cross settling our sin. All He wants us to do is see, see with our spiritual eyes the magnitude of His love and His grace and His forgiveness and receive. May our spiritual eyes be opened so that we can receive. Forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I trust you will see it in a deeper way.
and we will experience the forgiveness and the reconciliation of God so that we can pass on the ministry of reconciliation. That becomes our ministry to the world that we live in. Look at what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. I charge you, very serious words, I command you. That's what it's saying, I command you, in that sense of authority. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing at his coming. Preach the word. So what is Paul commanding Timothy? Preach the word. And then he goes on to say, be ready in season and out of season. Be always prepared to bring the word of reconciliation to people. And he says, if you have to convince people, convince them. If you have to rebuke them, rebuke them. Exhort them, exhort them. And with all long-suffering and teaching, that was the mandate the Apostle Paul passed on to Timothy and to the church. Then it says in verse 5, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions. There will be afflictions as we embrace the ministry of reconciliation. People don't like to know about God. People don't want to choose the path of truth. You become more popular by doing wrong than standing for righteousness. It says endure that affliction. And it says, do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the gospel. Reconciliation. Do the work of an evangelist. Is our ministry. Once you've tasted reconciliation, it's powerful. Once you've tasted reconciliation, you want to run out and bring the hope and the message of reconciliation to people around you. Let's exploit the ministry of reconciliation that God has entrusted in our care, in our hands, so that through you, through me, through us as a church, if we can only see it and recognize it and believe God, God will see the nations being turned. We will see the nations being turned. We will see people coming to the Lord. The descendants of Abraham will be multiplied. We stick in patiently and we trust God. God, would you do it? Thank you for listening to this message. To know more about us, please visit www.adonai-ministries.com.